podcast, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up with the market, the economy, and any worthwhile topics and discussions. My name is Matthew Campbell, and joining me is my partner, Camden Elkanati. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the What's Up podcast. Now, an intro to our newsletter. Our newsletter prides itself on the application of long-term knowledge, so you'll see that our newsletter is structured where we'll have the market section that breaks down all of the headlines and noise that happened during that week. But the rest of the newsletter will be information that will be turned into long-term knowledge that we hope can be used in the future. So now before we start, in some newsletters, we like to start off with a note that sparks your thoughts. And this week, the note is as follows. Potential, a word describing restricted possibility and opportunity, a limit, a stop sign, a paper certificate that says congratulations on it. You're only good for this much. You can only achieve this level. You can only make X amount. Humans make a limit in their mind of how much their potential is, but it's not accurate. We're too afraid or too lazy to figure out what our extremes are. How far can you go? How much can you achieve? Test yourself. Live your extreme. See how long you can stay awake or see how much you could get done in one sitting or see how far and how fast you could run. Test yourself. Where do you think achievement and accomplishment comes from? They come from breaking barriers, going to new heights, and beating your potential. Because all potential is a label, and I only wear non-branded shirts. Thank you, Camden. What made you choose that quote? As you know, Matt, this is a financial newsletter that talks about the stock market, world economic events, and what's happening on day-to-day operations on Wall Street, on Main Street. But we also like to implement some psychology and behavior in our reflections of life in the newsletter as well. We give uh, our readers, our audience, a diversification of knowledge and information to choose from. So, what do you think of our note this week? Well, first off, thanks for sharing that. And second, I think that um, that was a really valuable message for our listeners. It was like inspirational, hit right on the nose. Um, where'd you find that? I wrote it myself. Oh, you did? Well, well, well said. Thank you. So this week in the market, uh, we learned that the labor force participation rate through 25 to 54-year-olds, men, have been falling since the 1960s. In 1969, the participation rate was 96%, and now, in the past reading in 2015, it was 89%. So a 7% drop. Why is that, Matt? What do you think that is? Well, I mean, that could be for a lot of reasons. There's no doubt that that is not a good sign, but um, that could be just because the growing trend is that people want to try as best they can not to work. I mean, it could also be because of the rise of automation, outsourcing work, like um, the more labor-intensive jobs, we're trying to either outsource or find ways to eliminate them. Um, so that might be why we're seeing that. 100% correct. Uh, besides the reasons that you gave, and besides the reasons that they gave of 
because of health conditions, disability, the rise of the opioid prescriptions, and the rise of trade, automation, and outsourcing of work. I truly believe that people are becoming more uh, dependent on what technology can do for us and what we could automate and what we rely on. And they're becoming lazier and lazier and lazier. And they're not working as hard. They're expecting uh, to be paid more, but to produce less. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. It's it's an unfortunate sign, and I hope this is a trend that maybe comes undone soon. But I don't know if we're going to see that. So this letters, this newsletter's uh, theme this week is: What is the purpose of a corporation? Some believe that companies should focus their energy on maximizing shareholder value and should not concern themselves with giving to charity. By maximizing shareholder value, those shareholders can decide whether to make donations or not. Others say companies care more than just profits. They care about the customers, the market, the government, and the environment around them. Yeah, I, I would argue that um, corporations investing in charitable causes is actually beneficial for their shareholders. If they take the money to uh, enrich their communities and make the lives of like their employees, the community around them better, then that corporation is going to overall uh, do better. So, so any corporation that takes the time to give back, I think long term, it's going to benefit them. But it's definitely a trade-off. Um when a corporation has an excess amount of retained earnings that they don't know what to use it for, uh, they could either A, pay their shareholders a dividend, which means that they'll be giving billions of dollars to their shareholders, and those shareholders get to decide, decide what they want to do with their, with their money. They could either reinvest the dividends or, or take out the dividends, pay tax on it, and then use it for their other uh, spending habits or whatever they want to use it for. Or the company could take those retained earnings and invest it back into the company with R&D and hopefully innovate their products or discover something new to make more profit in the future. So it's definitely a trade-off and it's definitely a challenge that management faces of of what they should do, what's, what's more appropriate, what will the shareholders like. What can we do? Because if they do take the money and not give it to shareholders and they reinvest it into the company, what if nothing comes out of it? What if they just waste the money? What if they can't find or rediscover or innovate something where future profits won't increase? Uh, that's, that's true too, because when you give back, you know, that's, the results aren't always tangible. You can not always tell the difference you're making. But uh, I also think we all have sort of a responsibility, you know, these corporations that make it to the top and stuff, once they're, once they've kind of um, got another like strong growing period, I think that they should kick into more of this like corporate giving to support the community. I mean, that's just part of the game. And with this uh, new boom of the millennial generation and the uh, Gen Zers, uh, the purpose used to be to maximize shareholder value. That's what we've always known the purpose to be. But now with the the rise in ESG investments and environmentalists protesting and, and people uh, uh, asking for, for more rights and more reform, uh, 
The purpose is to deliver value to our customers, invest in our employees, deal fairly and ethically with our suppliers, and support the communities in which we work. And that overall message uh, makes investors, the, the new, young, rich, millennial investors, happier and more willing to invest into companies. Absolutely. I, I Personally, I always try to buy products when I know that they're trying to be net carbon, have less of an impact, you know, things that are recycled, companies that really care and are investing in the environment, some cause. I, I know I always feel much better. Uh, investing in those products as a consumer. But Milton Friedman thinks differently. Milton Friedman states that a corporate executive is the employee of the owners of a public company and has a direct responsibility to his employer. He states desires of the owners are to make as much money as possible while conforming to society's rules, that there should be a clear separation between the goals of companies and the goals of individuals and government. But most of these owners care more than making money. Our shareholders, we care more about making money. They care about ethical, moral, social, and environmental government issues. And that's exactly what you stated. That's what we want. And that's what we, we, we expect to see from corporations nowadays. Yeah. I mean, you know, I definitely, uh, Friedman has his point, but if we look back at kind of where that brought us today when we have like corporations who focused on their profits, uh, increasing shareholder value, then that brought us to where we are today, which is a world that's um, just on the brink of barely holding on. We've set a trend that if it's not undone by 2050, we're going to be looking at a vastly different world because of climate change, largely because of these corporations who focused on their profits and um, overlooked like their corporate responsibilities. Exactly. And when you invest into a public company, you, you, you hope that the company's values and principles uh, are similar to your own sentiment and care. That's also a shift in yeah. mindset that we're seeing nowadays with uh, new investors. Exactly. I mean, that's why a lot of corporations work so hard to kind of form their corporate identity so that their consumers like have kind of, that to hold on to, you know, like if you think like luxury brands, you know, like people get very like uh, invested into like the brand behind like BMW, Mercedes or like Tesla now, you know, like they, they kind of have like their own little niche and their uh, consumers really get behind that or other brands that are more like environmentally friendly or green, like they attract a certain type of consumer because as consumers, we try and find like, um, parts of our identities in the things that we buy and consume. Now, Meb Faber, uh, who is a money manager in Manhattan Beach, California, and he has a great podcast, uh, he wrote a paper, uh, a white paper called Shareholder Yield. Uh, he talked about capital allocation and investing, and quote, he said, Returns for shareholders will be determined largely by the decisions a CEO makes in choosing which tools to use in deploying capital and raising capital. Dividends and their reinvestment represent a major portion of stock investors' total return over time. By reinvesting dividends and compounding the portfolio returns, the final value of the total return portfolio turns out to be 99.8% higher than the non-dividend portfolio. Now, this is basically explaining how 
investing in dividend paying stocks and reinvesting those dividends back into the stock compounds the growth of the portfolio at a much higher rate than the non-dividend portfolio. Absolutely. Um, That is a valid point. But uh, we have to remember, too, that there's more than just returns uh, to focus on when we look at corporations. Like if we take Google, for example, who um, they really make sure to spread their message that like they care about the environment. Uh, Lots of their employees get paid time to work at uh, charities as well and to kind of pursue those other endeavors. They work towards being... um, to having a net carbon impact and that really works well for google when they go to try to attract the best of the best of the new generation the best software engineers you know the best technicians um and that really plays a lot into the company's social capital like they wouldn't be the top search engine today if they weren't able to attract those top level employees exactly and it's strange because um even though Meb Faber made a great point of how, how dividend-paying stocks uh, outperform non-dividend-paying stocks, uh, most of well-known corporations like uh, Google and Berkshire Hathaway, they don't pay their investors and, and owners uh, dividends. Yeah. yeah. Amazon as well. I, so, And also said that... Uh, Higher dividends yielding stocks outperformed low dividend yielding stocks in 20 countries from 1975 to 2010. One of the most important qualities of a successful investment analyst is the ability to adapt to change. Companies have been lowering their dividend payout ratios for the past 70 years. And one of the reasons for this is in the beginning in the late 1990s, share buybacks have outpaced dividend payments. So Dividend payments and share buybacks serve the same purpose because when you uh, buy back the outstanding shares in the market with uh, the reduced shares in the market, it reduces the dilution and it also increases price. So you get the same effect. Yes, absolutely. It's it's a good approach. That's, there's a book um, that we've talked about before, but it's called The Outsiders. It's a story about uh, unconventional CEOs who implemented tactics like that and very sim- similar tactics to get some of the highest uh, returns under their tenure of any corporation. Mm-hmm. Another interesting point, uh, which uh, may be true or not, uh, but I did hear it recently, is uh, most most public companies who do pay dividend, they try to pay uh, the dividend payout ratio equal to the risk-free return in the market to show that uh, some of the the either default risk or investor risk that will f- you face by, by buying into a company will be less because we'll be paying dividend at the risk-free rate. So at least you'll, you'll generate that guaranteed return. Well, Camden, another uh, important aspect of corporations and how they manage their investments are pension funds. While not too many corporations uh, still give pension funds for retirement, I think it's important that we talk a little bit about it. Um, A pension fund is basically a type of retirement plan that corporations offer, but 
mostly now it's government entities that mainly offer these types of plans. But um, it's basically after you retire, you will receive an annual payment equal to a certain percentage of your salary. And most of the time, this percentage is based off of uh, the last position that you worked at the company, your highest paid position. So um, this type of plan was really popular a couple of decades back when the uh, general workforce went to work for a corporation for mainly their entire lives um, and worked their way up the ladder. And then when they retired, that company paid them back for their service with uh, these, these annualized payments so that they could live into their retirement. And this is a really good retirement plan because you have these guaranteed payments where um, you're getting a good percentage of like your highest paid salary there. So if you left in a management position, you were making fair money um, off of that. And it was a really, a really good way to attract, like we talked about Google, like attracting uh, high level employees. Like Boeing is probably one of the most famous examples of these employers who had a really strong pension plan and use that to attract very talented people um, because they knew that if they went to work for Boeing in a high position, that they really wouldn't have to worry about retirement. Um, unfortunately, this trend has kind of fallen apart. It can be rather expensive for corporations to maintain this because the way that they work is they'll set up like the company will set up like a pension fund and the manager of that fund has to consistently earn uh, enough return on the investments to make the payments that the corporation's obligated to. And if they don't hit that level of return, then the employer is gonna have to pay that difference. So if the market's not performing well, the manager isn't able to hit that mark, then it's gonna cost the corporation money. Pension fund managers have the most stressful job in the world because <laughs> they're managing billions and maybe even trillions of dollars. Um, and the livelihood, the future livelihood of, of the people that these funds will, will go to are reliant on their performance. And it's so stressful now in this environment, this current market environment, because now these pension funds have to start looking for more riskier investments yeah. because they need yeah. to create some type of return. With, with negative interest rates in Europe and with the economy very, very uncertain in the U.S., these, these pension fund managers have a huge responsibility. And it's becoming more difficult to define return. And without return, uh, you, these, these pension fund uh, beneficiaries uh, won't be able to get any, any type of money in the future for, for retirement. And this can cause huge problems uh, when they retire. Yeah, absolutely. And it's for those reasons and for like the high cost that we've seen the corporations move away from uh, giving pension funds to their employees and moved over to uh, 401k retirement plans. In some cases, IRAs or Roth IRAs as well, which uh, unfortunately aren't as beneficial for the employee, but they are more cost effective for the employer. And the way these plans work are uh, basically they're defined contribution plans. So you will take for a 401k, for example, you'll take money from your paycheck and put it into this uh, 401k retirement account. 
and your employer will put some money in and match you up to a certain percent. And this money is put into the market and it grows with the market. Um, so in most cases, if you're smart about this, if you contribute the, a fair amount uh, early on, then this money is able to grow and follow the market average and you're able to retire with a fair amount of money. But it's not like those guaranteed payments that we talked about before. So if there is an unexpected downturn in the market, um, if you don't contribute the amount that you should be contributing, if your employer only matches you up to like 2% of your contributions, then you won't be able to save um, up enough money. And the thing about these two is that people who aren't as financially literate aren't always sure how these plans work. They don't save the proper amount. And when they go to retire, they don't have near enough. Yeah. And for us, um, even though we are young and we have uh, tons of time before we need to start thinking about retirement, um, it's going to be it's going to be very hard for the financially illiterate to to be able to uh, have a very successful and fruitful retirement. And the only solution I see that will enable people to to have money to retire and not outlive their money is to have a mandatory savings program in place where parts of your income um, are restricted to going into a savings account that you can't touch until you retire. And this will help people uh, not not uh, spend all their money or, or not blow all their money on their, like their ch- paychecks on stupid things, but uh, will really, really make them focus on saving and require them to save. Yes, absolutely. I, that's really, in this case, without pension funds um, and with uh, the state of Social Security being what it is, that's really people's only retirements if they want to be able to retire and not have to be financially insecure. And now talking about uh, the riskiness and uncertainty and and how cheeky this market is, um, something that we've seen recently is the inversion of uh, the yield curve. And the yield curve uh, basically is uh, the government pays out rates um, that investors expect to make. So there's a one-month rate. There's a two-year rate, there's a 10-year rate, there's a 30-year rate. And what happens is generally you want to have the the short-term rates be less than the long-term rates. But what we've been seeing is the long-term rates being shorter than than the uh, short-term rates. And uh, say, take the two-year treasury bill and the 10-year treasury bill. When investors think a near-term economic downturn is becoming more likely, they prefer to hold longer maturity bonds. Why are investors pricing more risk for a recession? Because of the slowing in global industrial production and trade volumes, and because uh, most of uh, the world is experiencing uh, a weakening economy, and some uh, economies like Germany and Argentina and Venezuela are going through recessions currently. What do you think of the yield curve? Do you think it's a good indicator of a recession? I think that um, like 
historically speaking, it's been one of the strongest indicators. But, um, I mean, you and I have been following it closely for a while now. Well over a year ago, we saw it getting close to um, inverting. And now with its recent inversion, and here we still are, I think that that goes to show how artificially high the market is being held up right now that these natural indicators that normally show us what's going on really aren't telling us anything anymore. I think it's a bad harbinger for the future. Definitely. And, and this fear and uncertainty uh, with investors talking more about recession and Google searches on recessions are, are spiking. This fear alone could potentially create a recession of people just panicking and just selling and that can cause uh, either a flash crash or a long-term, very deadly recession. That That's true. But with the market being what it is, we really just have to wait and see. Yeah, we have to wait and see. Okay, well, now it's time for our term of the week. This week, Camden, uh, our term is going to be business cycle, which plays in perfectly to what we were just talking about with the recession. Because a business cycle is the fluctuation in economic activity that an economy experiences over time. So relating to like what we were just talking about, it's natural for the economy to go through periods of growth and then periods of decline. Um, so we've been in a very long period of growth right now, the longest in U.S. history, and it's only a matter of time before the business cycle moves on to um, a period of decline. And it's inevitable, um, even though... Uh, the central bank and the Federal Reserve, uh, they say that their role is to try to expand uh, and, and continue the expansion for such a long time. Um, really, it's, it's a natural phenomenon for, for there to be contractions and expansions. It's, it's uh, basic economics. Uh, it's the business cycle. And, and we've been following this for a long time. We'll continue to follow. Yep, absolutely. So I, um, I understand that you've got another book review for us this week. I do, and it's one of my favorite books I've read this past summer, and it's called "The Fish That Ate the Whale" by Rich Cohen. Now, basically, uh, you need to read this book because our our key takeaways take away um, uh, great quotes that you can live by and be inspired by. Uh, but we don't usually talk about the the story of the books that we read. And this is one of the best stories I've read. So this book is about a man named Sam Zemeray, who is an immigrant who moved to the U.S. And he has all of the characteristics of an entrepreneur. He's ambitious. He's motivated, he's driven, and he eventually succeeds. And the way he succeeded in the, in, the, in the market that he succeeded in is very unique. He basically became the banana man. He made all of his money based off of selling bananas. And he spent most of his time in Central America. And he sold his bananas by shipping them to the U.S. And it talked about his, his failures and his successes and basically his entire life. His entire life was based off of this. Could you, so some, 
Yes. Could you talk a little bit more about his life briefly? Because I read that um, that Zimmeray lived one of the greatest untold American stories of the last hundred years. So that's really intrigued me to learn about uh, a little bit about his story. Obviously, I'm going to have to read the book, but. So he basically came from nothing. Uh, he was an immigrant who moved to the U.S. Uh, with nothing. And um, he was trying to to make it big. He wanted to sell something. Um, and he discovered bananas. He tasted the banana and he thought that was the most magnificent thing he ever tasted. And he was more curious about it. And he's the type of person, even though he has a very strong accent and not not the best social skills, he would question people until he got everything out of them. And he would ask them, okay, where are these from? What are they? How are they grown? How much do they cost? Uh, how does the shipping work? How do you ship them? And he basically uh, moved to uh, parts of South uh, America and Central America, like uh, Panama and Nicaragua and Ecuador, and he started working at the bottom. Uh, he worked uh, at the ports. He was some of the, the, the manual labor people that uh, would would pile the ships with bananas, cartons of bananas. And he finally discovered that after working and selling, he bought his first batch of bananas. And he estimated that it would take about two weeks to, uh, to get the bananas to uh, St. Louis, Missouri. And back then, they didn't have refrigerators on their huge cargo ships. Uh, they did have containers, but no refrigerators. So uh, you know bananas, how they they expire at a certain date where they get really black and un- unedible. So he basically timed it correctly. And during that experience, during that journey of going there by taking uh, the, the boat and then a train to get to his destination, he learned the most successful thing that he needs to know about trading and distributing bananas. And that's what uh, made him so successful. And I'm just going to leave it off there because it was a great book, but we'll give you some key takeaways that we got. Yeah, I'd love to hear what you learned, but I mean, that's, that's great. That's like true, like American dream. I love that. So yeah. What are some of the things that you took out of this book? So his personality is, is amazing. It's something that I, I embody myself and some of his principles that he believes in, I, I truly believe in as well. Uh, one of the things that he does not believe in is small talk. And he said that if he does not say much, it's because he considers small talk a weakness. He, he's a businessman. He gets to the point. He gets uncomfortable in, in small talk. Um, and I definitely agree with him, and I definitely experienced the same. Here's some other quotes. Uh, a man needs a code or else lives willy-nilly like an animal. Show me a happy man, and I'll show you a man who is getting nothing accomplished in this world. Wow. That's definitely some deep stuff. That's... Maybe, here's another one. Maybe we can't make the people love us, but we will make ourselves so useful to them that they will want us to stay. And I will leave off with that. Well, great. Um, I'm glad you really enjoyed this book. I can't wait to get started on it myself. Now we'll move on to our financial topic, Expanded for the Week. And this week, we talk about the basics of money management. And you and I uh, 
we we believe in the importance of money management. It's it's very vital, even though money is not the all empowering embodiment of of what we should live for. Uh, it's definitely a necessity in life. Without money, we can't operate. So yeah, Camden, we you and I really believe um, in money management, and we actually try to teach as many people, um, especially our peers at college, money management skills. Because when we when we make money decisions, they have consequences that ripple um, through our lives. Correct. And one of the, the key takeaways from this financial topic expanded uh, is the life cycle theory. It basically explains that uh, you should spend your money when it gives you the most happiness and save it in times of plenty. We get a little less happiness for each additional dollar we spend. And borrowing means you spend less in the future in order to spend more money today. Yeah, this is something we've looked into. I, I don't know if this is one that I completely agree with because uh, the life cycle theory, it basically says that like you're going to make less money when you're younger and more when you're older, which one of the things that it says is makes the case that you should borrow more when you're younger and um, really focus on how much happiness you can get for like each dollar when you're younger. Um But it's not only the happiness. The reason why they say to borrow so much when you're younger is is not out of choice. It's out of obligation. In in the beginning of your life, uh, we're our our true true goal is to maximize our human capital. So our education, uh, try to achieve the highest degree. Absolutely, uh, don't get me wrong. It really does stress the importance of borrowing and to finish your education to work towards your highest so you can increase your, increase your future potential. Um, so, yeah, but I just think it requires like a lot of like really being sure and weighing the pros and cons. Yes, like, it's very technical know, and it's probably very, very impossible to do. Even yeah, though some yeah. people are doing it, it's very impossible to do. Yeah, you need to stay really... Um, you need to keep like the end goal always in mind in order to like spend your money according to this theory. But with that said, it's it's probably one of the more unique ones that you and I have come across. Um, I think it's one of the only ones I can really think of that kind of tries to measure like happiness, which is important. That's something that you can't forget about even when uh, just talking about money management. Correct. And uh, even though it's very technical, it does does tell you things that you should do that are fairly easy. Like the younger you start saving, the more wealthy you'll be later in life and the, the less stressed you'll be later in life. Yes. I mean, absolutely. Those are things that are really important to account for here. We also talked about the difference between liquidity and solvency and the most liquid and safe assets you could own. We talked about how the government provides a number of tax incentives to encourage people to save for education. We talked about the economics of home ownership. Basically, we talked about the basics of all money management that you'll be experiencing throughout your life. Yeah, this is a document that I'd really encourage our listeners to go check out on our website, Personal Financial Independence, because it really goes over um, the basics as well as some types of uh, like investment engines you can use to um, for the our like risk tolerant investors to like our ones who are more weary of risk. Like we talk about CDs in here, um, 
which is one thing that if you're worried about like the risk of the stock market and stuff, that's a mechanism you can use to invest your money. Um, we talk about all sorts of like uh, tax advantage plans as well. And we, we try our best to make uh, the discussions and topics that we, we uh, explain to our audience as simple as possible, as basic as possible. And this, this podcast in our past newsletter spoke about the business cycle and uh, shareholder value and the different beliefs of how sh- shareholders perceive that value and, and what top executives in, in public companies should do uh, with their retained earnings. Uh, and we also talked about uh, pension funds and uh, hopefully uh, you all got something out of it. And uh, we want to shout out our, our website, personalfinancialindependence.org. In our newsletter, the What's Up Friday newsletter. Thank you all for listening in. We hope you've enjoyed this week's What's Up podcast. And we hope uh, you you listen to us again and give us some feedback. Uh, free, feel free to shoot us an email to the address in the podcast notes below. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Camden.